So I spoke with several people after last week and teaching about Saul and grasping and groping in the dark and kind of fumbling his way and disobeying God and doing really not good things. And some of these people that I talked to said, you know, I really relate because I do the same thing and it's scary. Like, am I going to end up like Saul? And, you know, this is scary stuff, isn't it? You think, am I going to make it? So, this week, we're not looking at Saul, we're looking at David. This is the other end of the spectrum. And you know, David has problems and tragedy and his plans don't work the way he wished they would. But David handles life differently than Saul does. David lives with God and he's got this grid that he always looks at life through that makes sense. And the grid is, I have God and God has me. He wrote in Psalm 56, verse 9, this I know that God is for me. Now this grip on God keeps him from doing what Saul does, which is desperate and stupid things. And it enables him to face everything in life with courage and trust in God that God is going to work through him so what we're going to see today is David's highest priority is to keep his grip on God. So I'm reading in 1 Samuel chapter 29. And it says here that the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. Don't let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? 
And Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you've been upright. And you're going out, you're coming in with me in the army, is good in my sight. For to this day, I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now, go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you're as good as my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go with us up to the battle. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you're up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David's plans get shot down and thwarted. Because here are the Philistines about to attack Israel. And they're reviewing their men. They're having their men pass before them in parade, in a sense. And the lords of the Philistines are looking. They're looking critically to assess their ability to make war. And you got to do this because you're not going to just run into battle unprepared and get cut down like grass if you can help it. So you got to know we are going to steamroll these guys. We don't want it to be a close call. We want to mow them. We want to kill them. And we don't want to get killed doing this. So they're looking at their guys, sizing them up, anybody that shouldn't be there. And then they notice right at the rear, you know, right when maybe they might get tired and say, look, we got this in the back. We got this. But then they notice, wait, 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 wait just a sec. There's a bunch of Hebrews there. Remember, that's kind of a derogatory name that you call people who don't have prestige and power. Hebrews. Imagine you say the name, then you spit. What are those worthless people doing there? And Achish wants to say, hey, he's a great guy. I mean, he's phenomenal. He's for us. And the Lord's go, uh-uh, absolutely not. Because he could turn on us. And no way. So Achish says, you got to go home. And David protests. And you notice how he does it. It's kind of ambiguous. He says, I want to go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king. Sounds gung-ho, but which lord the king? You can say that with full conviction. I'm telling the truth. I want to fight against the enemies of my lord the king. Achish believes him. Achish believes, talking about me, yeah. 
He's a great guy. And I am convinced that David wants to pull what you would call an Avengers endgame kind of move. Right when you least expect it, here comes David and his men to slice up the Philistines from the rear, and Saul slices them up from the front, and it's a rout, and the Philistines are completely wiped out. David is looking forward to that, and Achish goes, nope, can't do it. Oh, come on. You're kidding, right? Nope. I'm serious, dead serious. You got to go home tomorrow. You're out of this one. So David has to obey him. Can you imagine in his mind, David has this all set out. And these scurvy Philistines <laughs> are going to be wiped out. But no, he doesn't get to do that. So let's go into chapter 30. It, it gets worse. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, they only find out later in the chapter who did it. It doesn't have a tag on one smoldering stump saying, hi, just to say the Amalekites did this, heart. They just turn the corner and there is their city burned to the ground. And nobody, and you hear the, and this isn't good. And it's such a shock that they all begin weeping because they can imagine the worst. Their wives are gone, their sons, their daughters. And just to realize everything has been wiped out. Who knows what's happened to our families? And they weep until they're exhausted. They're emotional potatoes. There's nothing left in them. Now, not only are David's plans threatened and thwarted, not only is there tragedy, but now his men are talking of killing him. 
they're calling for David to be stoned. That means they want him dead. And they're blaming him for what's happened. Now, this is a typically unspiritual way to respond to tragedy, is to find somebody and blame them. So let's do something desperate and stupid to fix things. This is something Saul would do. Find a scapegoat, blame them for everything, kill them, and then find out you got worse problems. So you take that guy you just killed and kill him again. And it's not like killing David would bring back their wives and their daughters. It wouldn't solve a thing. It might make them feel better for 30 seconds. And then they got worse problems because all of our families are gone and we don't have a leader now. That was smart. And you notice that David here is greatly distressed. I would consider that understatement. David personally is shaken. Do you get it? Can you imagine him thinking, nothing is working out. I don't know what to do about all of our families gone and the city burned. The guys want to kill me. I don't know what to do about that. And they're blaming me. And I didn't do that. You notice that David is not magically saved from life because he's the anointed of God. David strides through life and the seven angels throw rose petals in his path lest he scrape his foot. And he looks at all the other riffraff around him having tough lives and headaches, tax bills and scrapes on their cars and he says, poor riffraff, you pitiful things, you. But I'm walking on rose petals and I feel some sympathy for you, but not a lot because you're riffraff and I'm David. Ha! You ever get that impression? The saints in the Bible, they don't have problems. I got problems. I must not be a saint. Not a very good one. I'm a virtual Catholic. Sorry to all of our Catholic friends on the live stream. Moving along. Um, he's getting hit on all sides. Have you ever been hit on all sides? And just felt like, wow, the hits keep coming. But he is not reacting like Saul. He's not reacting like his own men. David doesn't look to do something desperate and stupid that is no solution at all. Look what it says, the very last part of verse 6. But... David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I've heard some people teach this chapter that at this point, 
David, who has been backsliding for a year and four months, is broken and humbled before God, and he repents. The problem with this is that there are perfectly good words in Hebrew for repent. I know of at least two. And those words are not used here. And I think if David repented, they would use the word repent. Does that make sense? Superficially, it might make sense. But what David goes on to do is the result of a mature walk with God, and you don't get there by backsliding first. Does that make sense? Growth comes from growth, not by acting like a virtual Philistine. So David is not repenting here. What he is doing is he is going back to this practice of looking through the grid that makes sense out of all life. How do you approach life? How do you understand everything that happens so that it makes sense? Now, somebody who doesn't have a grid like David maybe one like Saul or all of his men, can look at what has just happened and say, there's no God. He let my plans go in the toilet. He let the city get burned, my wife, my children, they're all gone. I have to find somebody to take out my anger on. I got to beat somebody up. That's not going to solve anything, but it's going to make me feel better. I'm going to throw God down the well. Fat lot of good he does me. That's the way some people's grids work. Anything goes wrong, throw God down the well. He's doing a lousy job of running the universe. That's not David's grid. David looks at life through this grid that God is for me and I am for God. That's how he evaluates everything that happens. Now, wouldn't you like to know what he did? how he strengthened himself in the Lord. You know, this is the most important thing in the entire chapter. And there's no explanation. There's no one, two, three. Do these things, be strong in the Lord, man. You're going to look like the Hulk spiritually. That bugs me about the Bible sometimes. You don't get a, a one, two, three right when you want it. So what do you do? This is for the guys that study with me on Thursday night. You gotta look at the context and you gotta look at everything carefully. 
And I want to bring your attention to verse 6. Look how it reads. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The Lord his God. That's our clue to what David did. David took time to remember that the Lord is his God. Now, there's a bunch of things that go along with that. Like, God came to David as a young child and he said, you're going to be the king of Israel. And he had Samuel the prophet anoint him with the holy oil and he's a kid and God says, you are the king. And it says, the Holy Spirit came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now that is a tremendous experience. And you don't take an experience like that for granted. Just, oh, that was interesting. What's on Netflix now? David kept seeking God. And his whole point was, you know what? That's repeatable. I want God. That was the direction of his life to seek God. That's how you get things like Psalm 27, where he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. And you know, when he was writing that, there was no temple. He's not talking about I want to become a monk in a monastery somewhere and just spend all my time sitting in a cross-legged position, burning incense, going om. David has to live a life. He has to be a king, an organizer. He has to direct the battles. He's got to be a person. But he's saying, I want to live in his house. I want to be where God is. I want him upon me. So he's got this relationship with God, and it's constant because God is faithful. It never changes because God doesn't change. Now, you know, David... He has his ups and he has his downs, just like everybody else. But the foundation of his relationship with God is not him. It's not based on David to keep it going. It's based on God. See, David's run out right here. He's greatly distressed he doesn't know what to do, and even his men are talking about killing him. So what does he do? He withdraws, and he looks at everything through his grid, and he says, God, you are for me. 
This I know. So if my plans are thwarted, okay, God is in control. He's got something better. I'm not going to fret about it. Ziklag is burned, but I don't know what's happened. I can go to God and ask him. And I got to do something about the guys I lead. I need God to give me his strategy so I can lead effectively. So look what happens next. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Isn't that amazing? How would you like to know before you go into battle, you're going to find those guys, you're going to wipe them out, you're going to get everything back, everybody is safe. That helps, doesn't it? It also helps to be able to go to the men. These guys who are so smart, they're going to kill him and then try to figure out what to do after that. He says, Okay, you guys, I just checked with God. God says we're going to find these guys and we're going to get everything back. We need to go right now. Suit up. Can you imagine what that does for morale? How it just changes from, we've got to find a scape scapegoat. We've got to find a pinata so we can hit him till his guts go out. Nope, we're going to do something constructive here. We're going to find those guys and get our wives and children back. Sounds cool to me. So verse 9. David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those who stayed, who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men. For 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field, brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites and the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, I'll take you down to this troop. And when he had brought them down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, 
because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. So think about this. Now David's told his men, we're going to go get those guys. We're going to get everything back. We've got to leave right now. And they get to this brook, and 200 of them say, you know what? We've been on the road for three days. We haven't got any more strength left. David says, that's okay. Guard our stuff. We're going to keep rolling. Now, you don't want to lose men when you're in a, a group that is going to attack a bunch of Amalekites and get all your stuff back. You don't want to lose a third of your force, do you? But you notice that doesn't phase David. That doesn't make him upset or chew these guys out. You know, you wimps. I need all the guys I can get to get this stuff back. He goes, it's okay, because God's with us. And numbers don't count with God. So he's not limited. David isn't discouraged. He keeps pursuing, because he knows he's going to get everything back. God said so. And then, they just happened to find this Egyptian kid out there in the wilderness, just all by himself. And this Egyptian kid just happens to have exactly the information they need. Oh, so it was a bunch of Amalekites that burned Ziklag. The guys that Saul did not wipe out when God commanded him to do that. So because Saul did not obey God, there's still Amalekites left to make David's life more complicated. All right? This is not God's fault. This is Saul's fault. If you want to lay blame, and we're not doing that because judge not before the time. All we want to notice is it just so happens that this Egyptian was dumped by his master three days ago. And David didn't know what happened three days ago. All he knew was that Ziklag was burned and I'm in trouble. But three days ago, this Egyptian slave got sick. And his master didn't care about him. So he says, well, I'm not going to take care of you. Do I look like a nurse? Forget you, I'll just get me another slave. So he just leaves his weak Egyptian slave there by the roadside and says, I don't care, and keeps on traveling. But see, why did he do that? Why did the Egyptian get sick? Because God is answering David's prayer that he will pray in three days. 
God is answering David's prayer before he prays it. Did you get that? Because stuff happens, but God knows it happens, and he's already working to fix things because God is with David. David has a God. So even before David prays, God, what do I do? God says, you will recover everything. Why? Because I'm going to leave an Egyptian there who can tell you everything you need to know. I'm not going to tell you that now. So they find this poor Egyptian guy and they feed him, they give him water. It's like, how long is it going to take? <laughs> he tells them, oh yeah, you know, we burned Ziklag three days ago. It's a bunch of Amalekites. And David goes, yeah, Amalekites, I'm going to kill them. Can you take me there? If you don't kill me. I won't kill you. Don't give me to my master. Why should I? I'm going to kill him too. Oh, good. <laughs> we both hate the same guy. Well, this is going to be good. Let's do it. And so they actually spend like all night and all day killing him. And, you know, you wonder why. All of a sudden, the Amalekites just quit traveling and they sit down and start having a party. Can you imagine? And they start whooping it up and we got so much spoil and, and we're having a great time. Nobody posts a guard. We're safe. Right in the middle of all this comes David and starts killing him. And you wonder why? Why did it go so long? And I'm sure that the Amalekites were saying, well, okay, it's bad, but there's not that many of them. Come on, we can take them. There's only 400 of them or something. But then these 400 guys are like killing everybody. And it's going on and on. It's like everybody's getting killed. And finally, these 400 young men just say, you know, if we stay here, we're going to die. We, can, we need to get out of here. So finally, they jump on their camels and ride off. But isn't it amazing that it took this long for them to figure it out? We can't beat these guys. They're incredible. It's because God's working for them. So they recover everything. And David even takes all the flocks and herds that the Amalekites had gotten from other places and says, this is mine. We're going to see why in a minute. Verse 21. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they had made to stay at the brook Bazor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, 
he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, David has recovered everything. And he comes back with his men to these 200 guys who were left behind. And these wicked and worthless guys in David's band say, well, these guys didn't help us. These wimps. So we're not going to give them anything. Just take your wife and your child and just get out of here. And David says, don't do that. You know, the writer says they were wicked and worthless men and they were with David. David has a management problem here. How do you manage your wicked and worthless men? Well, you notice how David does it gently, calmly, because God is enabling him to be patient with his guys. This is a work of God. It comes from looking at life through that grid of God. And you notice he doesn't say, well, you guys are wicked and worthless, so I'm going to kill you. He says, no, my brethren. Isn't that amazing? My brethren. Now, he doesn't get all tough back at them and break some heads and say, we're going to do things my way because I say so. He says, you guys, this victory didn't come about because you were so effective. This came about because the Lord is with us. We are one nation under God. Remember, my brethren? And God gave the victory. He says, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He's the one that enabled us to whip all those Amalekites. God preserved us. God delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. Now, he's focusing these wicked and worthless men on God and saying, we're not going to do like everybody else in the world does. Dog eat dog. Devil take the hindmost. We're going to share and share alike because that's who we are. So he makes it a statute and an ordinance in Israel. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first statute and ordinance in Israel since Moses. Isn't that interesting? He is giving law just like Moses. I think it's interesting that the writer would make a big deal about this. It's a statute. It's an ordinance. It's God. Well, that's pretty good management to make everybody get back on track and remember who we are and what we're doing. So verse 26, now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah to his friends, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, to those who were in Ramoth of the south, to those who were in Jadir, in a rower. Give me some more page here. Those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in Eshtemoah, those who were in Rechel, 
Those were in the cities of the Jeremiahites. Those were in the cities of the Kenites. Those were in Hormah. Those were in Chorashan. Those were in Athach. Those were in Hebron. And all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Now, there's significance in this. This is more days after the battle at Gilboa. That's going to happen in the next chapter. We're kind of doing a little forward and backward here. And at this time, Saul is dead. There is no king in Israel. And David is using this occasion of victory, his own victory, to just send a message to the guys. Here I am. And he's including all of these elders in his victory over the Amalekites. God is still at work. And he's working through me. Just want you to know, I'm here and so is God. You notice that he's not using all that wealth that he just got for his own private wealth. He's not saying, hey, I got me some cattle. He's using it to unify the nation and to say, guys, here I am. It's a step toward being king, but he's not making himself king. Did you notice that? He's just using that spoil to tell the elders, here I am, and God is still at work. What a message to receive in a time of national Mourning and fragmentation. Through the Lord, David is looking forward with hope. So look at all this. David is handling life in all of its ups and downs by keeping his grip on God. This is what he wrote in Psalm 56. This is the full quotation. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, for that God is with me. And this is what we get to know, that God is with us. Now, do you know that God is for you? This is like the big question, isn't it? Is God for me? Because if he is, then everything's going to be okay. And if he's not, I'm in trouble. So this is the grace of God that we get to know, that God is for us. How do we know that? beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because God sent Jesus to die in our place. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Did I say that? No, it's Romans 5. He says, hope does not disappoint 
verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, do you ever get the impression that you really are ungodly? And not just, ah, shucks, I guess I'm ungodly. But you really get that, like, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in God. I don't want to follow Jesus. I'm a jerk. Do you ever get that feeling? I do too. <laughs> Where do you go with that? You go to Romans 5 verse 5 or 6. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, zootalur, that means Christ died for me, comma, the ungodly. Whatever else that happens, you got that. Jesus came to save sinners. I qualify. <laughs> That's glorious. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you ever needed any forgiveness or mercy from God, God sent Jesus to die for you. And that's how you know he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. He loves you. That's how you know it. Now, what you do is you keep your grip on that. And I know I say this a lot. I kind of almost am scared to come and say this again. But I'm going to because it's demanded by this text. That the proper way to live is that you remind yourself that you have a God and that he is for you because it's so easy to forget. That's why. But you've got scriptures like Philippians 1, verse 6, where Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You think, how in the world am I ever going to finish what I started? Am I plowing a straight row or do I look back all the time and go wonky? Well, God is at work. He began this work. He's going to finish the work. That's how you're going to get there. But then you've got to be involved in this too. So in chapter 2 of Philippians... Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Your salvation is not you-powered. It is him-powered. And you know, 
parentally speaking, if your father has to sort of kick you in the rear sometimes, he will do it. And if he has to kick you all the way to heaven, by gum, he will do it. My father kicked me one time. Scared me to death. My father never, he never laid a finger on me. But I got snarky with him and I turned my back and the next thing I knew, I was in the air. <laughs> because my father used the side of his foot and I caught air. And I was filled with fear. Godly fear. The fear of the Lord and my dad, but mostly the Lord. And you know, have you ever felt that kick from your father who is in heaven so that you catch air? Well, good. God is working. <sighs> so that you catch air in Jesus' name, amen. And this is the thing to count on. You are not going to end up like Saul. Because God has begun a good work. This is God's work. And he will scare the living daylights out of you, but he's not going to stop until you look exactly like Christ with your nose. But in every other respect, you're going to look like Christ. <laughs> There's no stopping that nose of yours. I'm sorry, but... Now... The thing that Paul would say here is that you cooperate with God. That's the real issue. It doesn't rest on you, but you can cooperate. And this is what I advocate. Doing this with God. You can't do this by yourself. Do you know that this way that we're on is a living way? And that Jesus said, I am the way. It is a living way. That's why you got to do it with God. You can't even have a quiet time by yourself. Just do it with God. Now, when you practice this grid of saying, I am God's, God is mine, don't be surprised if all hell breaks loose. And if you've ever tried to put God first in your life, you know what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, everything starts screaming for your attention. Have you notice? You got to do me right now. Put that thing down. Do me. You think, my goodness, everything is screaming at me. But guess what? The one thing that will not scream at you is the Bible. Because the Bible speaks with a still, small voice. And so if I were you, I would just take everything that's yapping at you and write it down. And then you can say, well, thank you, Prince of Darkness, for ordering my day. <laughs> but I'm going to shove it over to this side and continue to seek Jesus. You know what you do? You read, you pray, and you meditate. And you think to yourself, that didn't do anything. 
this is one of the things that assaults you when you get done having your quiet time, as pitiful as it is. Something in your head says, that didn't do anything. You're not, you don't even glow in the dark. You're not <laughs> spiritual. You had no tingle there. And you think to yourself, is, it, is there anything happening? But you know, There's no fast way to grow a tree. And if you watch a tree grow, you're going to be convinced there's nothing happening. But something is happening. There's power in that seed. There's power in this little pathetic sapling that when it gets to where God wants it to, it's going to break up the earth, push the fence over, dominate the neighborhood. Nothing else can grow in its presence. It will crack the pavement. It owns the neighborhood. Because there's life programmed into that seed. Now, can you encourage yourself and say, hey, in 30 years, I'm going to look phenomenal. But seriously, it's on the way. And you may not recognize it, but it's happening. I assure you. So all you got to do is continue to plant this in your life. Cooperate with God. You know, you can't make it grow. But if if you don't plant it into you, it can't grow. That's the deal. So, this is the difference between groping blindly through life, hoping something's going to work, like Saul, and actually being connected to God, like David. Do you get the difference? This I know, that God is for me. Do you know that? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have made it clear in so many ways, more than I could mention, Thank you that you love us with everlasting love. Thank you that you pour out that love in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're doing a work that if we could see what you're doing, we would not believe how amazing it's going to be. So we want, we want to look through the grid that you have for us. We want to remember, you are mine and I am yours. And if you've never said it to God, say it to him 
in your heart right now, I am yours and you are mine. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.